Warning, All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, part three of my discussion with Detective Sean Gorman from the Lincoln, Rhode Island Police Department. That's another reason why I feel I need to stick around is you know, I've lived in this town all my life. My, my, my dad definitely put his heart and soul into this community. And I just feel like I have to stick around a little bit longer and, and just kind of maybe maybe help out before I decide, you know, that's it for me. Yeah. Well, I, I've been in business for a lot of years now. And I'll tell you, without a lot of the mentors that I've had, um, I, I don't I don't care how good you are. And unless you're just in a like a a sole proprietorship or some kind of a, a small business where it's just you. Uh, if, if you have any kind of a, a business that requires multiple prongs, you know, marketing and, and accounting and all these different, different areas, if you try to do it all yourself, you will fail. And it, that same rule applies with community service and, and, you know, service like what you're in. And it's, you know, to think that, there's people that actually look at you and apply a different standard than they do to anything else. And it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's that whole mentorship and that whole uh, experience thing goes through everything. I mean, you look at the training that a doctor has to go through, you know, they, they don't just go through med school and then they cut them loose. You know, they have to go through years after that to develop, develop their own, you know, specialization, but most importantly, they're being over overseen by people that have a lot more experience. And the reason they do, they do that is because people's lives are in their hands. Well, it's the same thing with police. My gosh, you can't, you can't just, you know, bring in all these new rookies and, and then turn them loose on the streets. It'd be a disaster. And that's kind of not really what's happening because fortunately good people like you are sticking around despite all of the crap that you guys have to go through. And, um, you know, and, and it's, you're doing it because you care and you're doing it because you are a part of your community and you love your community and you want to see your community succeed. And to me, that's, that is just such an attribute to how, you know, where your heart is. And that, uh, to me, that's the, the vast majority of people that I talk to that are in law enforcement have that exact same attitude. Yeah. That's why, that's why I love, um, you know, I love being an adjunct professor. I love things like this. Um, I'm actually through LinkedIn again, and it's, it's, it's turned into a pretty good, pretty good resource. Um, I'm actually volunteering to do, um, I, I think, uh, the other teachers will, will, I'll reach out through LinkedIn and ask, um, if there's anyone in the law enforcement community want to speak towards, you know, this or this or that, and, and you just click on the link uh, and you say, yeah, I'll do it. So I'm actually going to start doing that a little bit more because I just feel the more that I can speak to people, maybe the more they'll understand. Um, maybe we've had the wrong people talking for us um, and speaking up for us. 
And I just feel like the more you, you, you listen to people that just want to reach out to people and say, listen, this is, this is what's actually happening. And if you want to believe me or not, that that's entirely up to you. I get it, but I have no, you know, I, I have no horse in the race. I, I'm not trying to convince you because it's going to benefit. Well, maybe it will benefit me because people maybe treat us a little bit nicer, which is always a nice thing. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel that that's why I love being a professor and I love teaching these kids and, and I love hearing them say some things and then look at them and say, I don't, that's not necessarily right. I, I, I respect your, your, your decisions. I respect your opinions. Um, but that statistically speaking, factually speaking, that is incorrect. And then when I explain it to them, it's actually, it's actually pretty impressive. And, and that is the, that's the best part of it all. It's just to kind of, you can almost see them they click like, like, Oh, wow. That's, that's not what I've been told. And well, right. no, cause you're, you're, you're talking to the wrong people. Yeah. And Frankly, I think more and more of you guys have to step up and start speaking out more because um, there's far too few of you. I mean, there's 700,000 law enforcement officers in the United States, and I don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere around there. And I'll tell you what, the amount of noise that is being made that is, that is positive toward police is so small compared to the negative that if you guys don't stand up and speak out for yourselves, man, yeah, it's it. This is just going to get worse, and it's which is one another reason why I love having you know detectives and, and experienced police officers like you on the show because you know my audience is growing, and you know, just, but just being able to get these positive messages out there and and say you know what these guys are these guys are part of your community, they actually care and. They're not out to destroy anybody's life, you know, like contrary to what other college professors and, and radicals are talking about. And it's that's just not the case. No, it's actually it's funny you mentioned that it's difficult because right now I'm actually trying to get a teaching like a, somewhat of a full time teaching um, gig. And, and they want me to have my Ph.D. and experience. <laughs> I know they, I know those unicorns are out there. I know they exist. I, 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 but in my entire time being a police officer, I have met one police officer who was actively getting his PhD and had experience and was a detective and went out and processed crime scenes. And I thought I was doing an amazing job with my master's degree. I thought I was, the, I thought I was the tip of the spear. And then I applied for a job. And in the interview, um, the person said, um, get a mat, get a PhD. And, and I, I, I was, it really took the wind out of my sails because I'm like PhD. And then I look, and then I was like, okay, fine. You want me to do that? I'll do that too. And then I went and looked at it and I saw how absolutely daunting and, and technically it's impossible. It's almost impossible because they want you there full time. And I'm like, wow, they don't want me teaching. They don't want somebody like me teaching. Cause it's almost like they're afraid of me because I wouldn't just be academia. I wouldn't just be teaching out of a book. I'd be teaching out of my experience. And just like when I told that, that student, no, that is, that, that is incorrect. Um, that is not how it works. I've never seen that happen. Um, I, I don't think they want that. They want people to teach from a book. And, it, and it's actually kind of scary, to be honest with you. It's, and and it, it's, it's, it's actually kind of depressing to think that, that they're only being taught by specific types of people that have been surrounded by just books and academia and they've never done uh, anything on the streets. And that that's, that's very scary. Oh yeah. Well, 
that I, I think that cycle that you just kind of described is the entire problem with the university structure right now, because I think the vast majority of people teaching uh, our younger generation have no experience. They have no idea what they're actually talking about other than what they learned from another professor who learned from another professor who learned from a book. Right. You know, these people that, it, they, for example, there was a, um, an economics course that I was taking when I was uh, in college years ago. And this guy was about mm, 27, 28, maybe, maybe 29, but definitely not in his thirties yet. And he was describing how he had his PhD. He'd been teaching for a number of years. And I mean, basically his first class, he gave us his resume and the whole time we're sitting there and it was an economics course. And so he's talking macroeconomics and what these major university or not universities, but companies should do based on certain economic factors. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, how does he know that? How does he know what a company should do based on that certain economic factor? And the fact is he, he couldn't because he had never been a part of a company. He had only learned it from a book. And yet, boy, uh, the, the major part was when I raised my hand and I said, how do you know that? <laughs> and he was like, you know, who are you to question me? And yeah, I, I got up, walked out and I was like, I dropped that class and there was about five or six people that followed me. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to suffer through an entire semester with this guy because it's all theory and most of it's going to be wrong. That's, that's why I love my, uh, I lo actually love my RISD experience because my first class um, was a Photoshop class and here it is five minutes and there's no professor. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? We're all sitting there looking around. All of a sudden, this guy comes in, ripping his tie off, swearing, saying, sorry, sorry, I had a, I had a meeting with the Olympic Committee. We're designing the torch. Um, and you know what? I'm, I'm so sorry. Just give me a second. Let me get squared away. And you say to yourself, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's right. ju he just came from a meeting where he's designing the Olympic torch. He, this guy gets it. And, and from that point forward, that's the type of teaching philosophy that I've always had because I've compared that to some of my similar exact almost exactly word for word what you just said I saw at URI in business uh, you know a business ethics professor that's never been in business he's never been in business he's, he's 27 28 years old and these what do you talk how can you tell me what business is like when you've never done it it's funny you said that that is almost the exact same experience that I had at URI and that's why when I went to RISD and I saw that, I was like, wow, if I'm ever going to be a teacher, I am going to make sure that, you know, I have some, you know, some hash marks on my arm before I, I, I teach anybody anything. Um, I'd like to teach through experience rather than through a book. Yeah. Well, anybody that's actually willing to pretend that they are an expert in a field when they've never had personal, you know, face-to-face -face type of experience and all they're doing is teaching theory out of a book. That's not somebody I want to learn from. And unfortunately, in the majority of professors out there, they, they just can't do both. Now, if you get some kind of an executive MBA, where a lot of those, those professors are retired business people, that to me has value. But it's, it's scary, really, who is educating some of our kids, because 
they don't have any practical experience. And, I, and it's, it's interesting. My dad, again, when he would go to a lot of these conferences and stuff that are, you know, a lot of them academia, a lot of them PhDs, but he had his PhD and he earned it while he was working. And so he did it and he had four kids and he built a house the whole time. And I'll tell you what, I've never seen anybody work so hard, but he used to go to these conferences and he'd come back and his, he'd just shake his head. And he's like, you know, there's a reason that the nickname for PhD is piled higher and deeper is because a lot of these people just have, no, I mean, they have a lot of experience specific to the, where they have studied, but outside of that, they are just the, again, the common sense rule just doesn't apply to them. No, not at all. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not that I wanted to get on my soapbox and I apologize for that, but you know, it's just something that I think is a major problem. And again, a lot of the people that turn into policy makers, like, you know, go into politics, come out of that same pool, if you will. And a lot of them don't have experience on the things that they're making policy on. And a lot of that affects law enforcement because they're making laws that you guys then have to uh, uphold. And, but for the common sense of it and for the good of the community, it just doesn't make sense. And I no, think, I think the defund the police movement is the epitome of that. Yeah. We, we find that happens as almost, um, almost on a monthly basis, we'll get a piece of paper an email saying, Oh, by the way, um, now it is no longer a felony to possess fentanyl, um, or, or cocaine, um, in this amount. And we, we look at each other like, who, who thought of this? Like, who thought this was a good idea? And then, I mean, I would go um, and I would, I would speak to the powers that be and be like, hey, how we don't even have that option in our computer. We can't even select misdemeanor cocaine possession. That doesn't even, they haven't even updated our computers. They haven't even updated our charge codes. How are we going to do this? And then it's just, it's just an absolute just, chaotic scene trying to almost work backwards and like you said it's like who thought of this and why didn't they reach out to the police department and why didn't they work with us why didn't they talk with us why didn't they say hey what do you foresee as problems even legalizing marijuana i mean i don't know about you but i mean now where are you located i i'm in salt lake okay so i don't know about you but every time i run around outside i'm high by the time i come home Every time I go, every time I go for a jog in, in the local um, park, I'm I have a contact high because everybody's smoking weed. That's DUI. That, that, that is DUI. Yeah. And, and, and it blows my mind that nobody thought that this was going to be a problem. And you cannot use a breathalyzer. You cannot use you know, a PBT. You can't use anything. You need to have, you know, special, specially trained officers to, to, to end up testing these people to then charge them with DUI, which we know, which we don't have because just that alone is, is hundreds of hours to get them to where they need to be. And who thought that was going to be a great idea? No, if they, they, they did that again, a gut reaction strictly for taxes, strictly for money, strictly to lessen the, um, the amount of people that are arrested and, and, and without talking to the people that, that deal with it on a daily basis. Well, and not only not talking to someone that is actually dealing with it on the streets, but I just, I just question whether or not, you know, we used to have to, 
we'd get a scenario from our command. And as a staff, we used to have to go into a room and we would have to war game every scenario we could think of. And we would come out with multiple courses of action. And then the commander would have to make the decision on what would be the best. But we had to do all the, all the research. And then we would have to advise the commander on, on, on the end of it and say, you know, I, I question whether or not anybody actually sat down and said, okay, if we legalize weed, what are the possible outcomes that could happen from that? How did they ever get into a room and actually justify and say, yep, we think that there's a possibility that it could get bad enough that people just jogging through the park could get a contact high. And is that really the best thing for society? We think that in the end, there's a possibility that we're not going to be able to arrest somebody for DUI, even if they crash their car because they're so high. And, you know, that, how is that going to benefit society? And I, I, just, I just don't believe that a lot of these people making these policies have actually thought them through. No, well, the, the, pro, the difference between those and, and the war games you speak of is that I'm sure no one at the table when you were doing the war games said, yeah, but you know how much money we'll get if we use this option? But that was never that was never part of the war game. You know what I mean, but it seems like that's the end result. You know, like, hey, Massachusetts is getting tons and tons of tax revenue um, from you know legalizing marijuana, and and we're missing that boat. I mean, let's let's do the same thing instead of stepping back and saying, hey, you know I mean, let's look at uh, let's look at it a different way. Let's look at how this could impact our schools, our children. I mean, we're seizing vape pens almost on a daily basis, they're coming into the police department with, with THC oils. These kids are, are, are smoking vape pens and getting high in school in their bathrooms because it doesn't really have that, that serious, like skunky smell. And the kids can do that. They can just walk around and smoke. And it, it is, it, it's amazing. Right now, things are, I mean, I have a 15 year old and I'm very, very nervous for him. And I, I hope he, I think I've done a good job with him. I pray I've done a good job with him. But uh, I mean, I, I fear for, for what's going to happen in the future because they're making really, really bad decisions that are panning out in ways that, that nobody not, and nobody could, could, have, could have foreseen, you know, um, and it, it's, it's unfortunate too. Yeah, well, just, just for the, the legalized marijuana, uh, I think Denver is a couple of years ahead of you guys. And oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, Denver, uh, you couldn't pay me enough to walk through central Denver right now. That place is a hole. And there, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. And like San Francisco level disgusting, where you're just like, have absolutely no desire to be anywhere close to that. And I think it's really that, that again, that's one of those long-term repercussions from a short-term solution. And I think the Hopefully the politicians that actually made those policies are, are starting to be held accountable for them, but you know, who knows? So anyway, it's just, uh, it's just one of those things that the, and it, again, the, the biggest problem is you can't blame the police officers that are having to enforce the laws. And when, when the, you know, there's human feces on the street, that's not the police officer's fault. That is the repercussions of bad political decisions. Correct. Yeah. So, Hey, let's, let's uh, lighten things up a little bit, man. Um, you know, at the very beginning, uh, when we first started talking, 
I wanted to, I, I, and this is kind of a tradition. And I, and again, I, I think the, the highlight reel that I'm going to make of all the, the best stories that I get out of uh, the police officers, um, hopefully yours will make it. So out of all the stories that everybody wants you to tell at Thanksgiving, uh, of some of the crazy things you have seen when you've been out there on the streets, what is one of the best stories you can think of? So my favorite story is um, a good friend, just retired, uh, is, uh, Wayne Boothlet, good friend of mine. We showed up at a call for a woman uh, beating a trash can with a shovel. Uh, so we showed up and we saw the trash can all dented in and the shovel off to the side and there was nobody around. So we knocked on the door of a condo and we opened the door and there was a female and every single drawer was yanked out of the kitchen. Everything was in total dismay. Everything was on the floor. Everything was pulled out of the cabinets, dishes smashed. Uh, and she was running around with a ketchup bottle, squirting them into the drawers. And a male came over to us and said, she's going through one of her episodes. And, and I should have prefaced this by saying, obviously, mental health is, is no laughing matter. But when you see something on this level, you just have to shake your head as to what happened to this person uh, to get to this. Um, and then she comes over and she's like, you'll have to excuse me, but I'm chasing a midget. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she's like, there's a midget hiding in my cabinets and I'm trying to spray him with ketchup. So the next time I see him, I know that's the midget that I was chasing and not another midget. And I said, I said, oh, okay. And I, I was looking at the, the, the male and he's just shaking his head and he's, and he takes me outside. He says, listen, she's you know, she's, she's not on her medication. And, and, and I obviously I felt sad for the woman that I went in and she started explaining to me how she was, um, you know, I mean, she started getting angry and say, you don't know, I could own this town. I'm a millionaire. Um, you know, I could buy you, you know, this, this, and this. And then she came outside and she started explaining that the reason why she uh, beat the trash can was to get the midget out. Cause she found the midget and she beat the trash can, um, to death and the, the midget ran off into the woods. Come to find out, she actually was a millionaire. Um, she actually owned uh, tons of restaurants, uh, boats, hotels, you name it, but because uh, that her husband left her, uh, and because uh, over, just because of her mental health and and just that she was not taking care of it, um, she she obviously let it get so bad that at that particular point she was having a um, you know an episode where she thought that there were midgets trying to chase her all over her apartment. It was it was definitely um, difficult to keep a straight face, unfortunately, because you know especially picturing her beating a trash can out in, in public with everybody watching her do this, screaming um, at you know something that that doesn't exist. So we ended up getting her um, into the hospital. And from what I understand, she she stayed there for quite a while uh, and she was doing much better. So I, I don't think she saw the um, the, the midget uh, anymore after that. So, <laughs> so that, that was one of the, the more interesting stories that, that I had. Yeah. Well, yeah. boy, if that doesn't uh, emphasize exactly you know some of the training that you guys need to be focused on and, and receive you know and and helping people with mental problems that's <laughs> yeah all right well i can i can picture someone spraying ketchup into their drawers to yes. try to <laughs> spray the midget uh, yeah well wow that's all right that's a pretty good one uh, yeah. normally there's some kind of a chemical barrier in between 
you know, people's erratic behavior like that. And so clearly yeah. there was something <laughs> a little bit off with her, but it was. yeah. Interesting story, man. So, Hey, I appreciate you coming on. It's, it's one of those things where we could go on and on for hours, but um, I, you know, getting different perspectives. And if you get a chance to listen to some of the other episodes uh, I've interviewed everybody from uh, the, you know, national uh, sheriff association to, you know, there's homicide detectives that have uh, investigated 250 plus homicides. You know, some of these guys just have just insane amount of experience and that's, um, but, you know, a perspective from a, I, I don't want to call you a small town cop because I know you have, like you said, big city problems, but you're, you know, a, a smaller community that to me, and especially Rhode Island, oh my gosh, you have to know what a gorgeous community you live in. It and, is, it, it, the whole thing is, it, and that goes back to what we were saying, where it's good because it's small, um, because we do the, the the resource sharing is 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 off the charts in Rhode Island. It's it's amazing. Um, I mean, just 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 having the the uh, Providence and and, uh, and and Massachusetts, they're fantastic too. I mean, they everyone the resource sharing in the police networking is 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 something nobody will understand. And and I, I thank God for that every day because. Um, you know, I, I, we can't do this on our own. I mean, we always have to reach out to other communities for help. Hey, do you know this guy? Can you help us with this? Do you have this? Can you help us with a car backup? You name it. Um, yeah. I mean, especially in Rhode Island, but it's a, it is, it is definitely, I, I can't, I can't say enough about the, the networking and then just the, the police community and how we all, we all help each other. Well, and a perfect example of that is I, I think, and so there's a, there's an MVAC. I was just out in Delaware just um, a few weeks ago and training those guys on a new MVAC system. And then there's one in, um, I always mispronounce it, Worcester? Worcester, yeah, Worcester, yeah. Worcester Mass. Worcester Mass, yeah. Worcester. Uh, I, I don't think that's an accent I'll ever fully pick up. But, uh, you know, those guys, I, I guarantee you, would be, you know, more than happy to help you with any kind of a major case, you know, if you had DNA issues. So just a little side note there. Yeah. But hey, man, I appreciate you coming on and uh, spending a little time, you know, in between uh, Christmas and New Year's. And so hopefully you guys are, you know, things are slowing down a little bit out there. And uh, but most importantly, I hope you're everybody's staying safe. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, it's all my pleasure. OK, we will talk at you later, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to All Things Crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime Day. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. 